When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope something you hear today encourages you. A reading from Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it to proclaim it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went, set out, and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God that proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on a sackcloth. Then came the news that reached the king of Nineveh. He rose from the throne removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes, that he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human made, human being an animal, no herd of flock shall taste anything. They shall not be fed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mighty to, king, to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from this fierce anger so that they shall not perish. When God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had, he would bring upon them and he did and he did not do it. But this was what was displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I had said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarnish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relinquish from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, it is right for you to be angry. Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it would, it would wither. With the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that it was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. 
But Jonah said to, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, are you concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow? It is, it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should it be concerned about, and should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is probably one of the most fun stories in all the Bible. Funny, comical, but also really serious. A lot of Bible stories kind of have that mashup of something really, really scary and serious and really, really comical. And Jonah provides that comedy for us today. But this is chapter three and four that we're reading today. The actual story starts in chapter 3. Um, it doesn't really start till then. The actual part of the story that God told Jonah to do. Go to Nineveh and tell him it'll be destroyed. It takes all the way to chapter 3 to get Jonah to do the very thing that God had asked him to do and called him to do as a prophet. Last time I checked, when you're a prophet, you don't get to always pick and choose your missions things you'll do and not do. It's ultimately God that um, tells you what to say, tells you what to do, and you kind of have to do it or not. And Jonah finds out what it's like to not do it. And this is true of our lives too. The majority of our spiritual lives are the parts before we get to Nineveh. They're chapters one and three. They're not um, chapters three and four. There is a chapter three and four in all of our lives, but the chapters one to three take the most of it. Chapters one to three, where we go our own way, where we say to God, I think I'm going to try it this way instead of the way I think you want me to do it. I'm going to try to meet my own needs as best I can and as quickly as possible. I'm going to try to find love and acceptance and belonging and community Um, the way I need to, and without any regard for anybody else. Now, I'm not saying we all have done that or anything like that. It's pretty extreme. But ultimately, the saying no to God is often a big part of our early lives. And Jonah shows that. The chapters one through three are that soul-crushing belly of the beast, belly of the whale experience that we have to have at some point in our lives, more than likely. I can't speak universally for every human, but just about every person that I've met that has a connection with God, that has a walk with God that is, um, is stable and sustainable, has been through something like Jonah's been through, where for whatever reason, through the actions of other people or through their own actions or inactions, ended up in the belly of a whale and spit out on a beach. And that was the sum result of their efforts. 
And that's the blessing. That's the, where Jonah needed to be, and that's where we needed to be, whether we like it or not. The real trials and setbacks and hard things that we've all experienced um, aren't good things, and they're not like anything we can really celebrate, but they're also what brought us here. Uh, there's an old philosopher named Paul Ricoeur who wrote about the second naivete. He said that you start out in life with a first naivete. You're naive. You're gullible. You kind of believe whatever your parents tell you, or school, or family, or church, and you accept it. And you also believe in Santa Claus and all kinds of other stuff that um, you maybe find out later isn't true. And there is no real Santa Claus. It was your mom or dad all along or some other person or nobody. Um, and there's this real disillusionment that comes when we discover the reality of life, the harsh reality of life, that life is not sort of the fantasy world that we believed when we were children. Uh, and that's a period of great confusion for people and disillusionment and despair. Um, the way we talk about it often is when someone goes to college and finds out that parts of the Bible are hard to believe and maybe difficult to understand. And, you know, the Gospels, all there's four different accounts of Jesus' life and they kind of contradict each other a little bit. And maybe it's not true and maybe it's all made up and maybe it's just a, something that people kind of did to control other people or have power. And that's just Christianity, let alone everything else in life. We certainly learn that about love. We have ideals of what our lives will look like when it comes to love and friendship and romance and marriage and family. And uh, when we're about 15, 14, 13, 12, <laughs> and then we find out what real life is like, um, that there's elements of those dreams and fantasies in all of our real life relationships. But there's also a lot of things that we never could have expected that would happen to us. And that can be really discouraging. And so there's this first naivete, then there's the disillusionment and despair and confusion and deconstruction. It's called a lot of different things. And then the second naivete is when you can emerge from that into a new kind of simplicity of belief and life where you can say, you know what? I'm not sure about all these other things that confuse me. And will always confuse me. I'm never going to be sure exactly. I wasn't there when Jesus was walking around Galilee. And I'm not sure about the four different accounts of this event in the Gospels. Um, but I also think that Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And that second naivete, which doesn't mean we're discounting the real thorny problems of life. Um, but they, it means that we are sticking to the essential truth of love. And that is we are loved by God, that Jesus shows us what God is like, that God is love. Um, and same way with relationships, that even though our lives probably haven't turned out the way we thought when we were 14 or 15, um, but there is love and there is life and there is joy and there is hope um, that is beyond what we could have imagined or hoped for but it's different than what we kind of thought in the beginning. That second naivete is where Jonah is now. The first three chapters get him to that place. He's got to go through the whale. He's got to get on the ship. He's got to get thrown overboard. I don't know about you, but that changes a person. 
when you've been thrown overboard of a ship and swallowed by a fish, he arrives in Nineveh a different person than the one he left. Um, And I don't want to get too speculative in this story because it doesn't say in the story, but when you spend three days in the belly of a fish, you know, you, you would smell different and maybe look really different. Um, all those stomach acids doing something to your hair. I don't know. That's not in the story. But he kind of arrives on the shores of Nineveh, um, a very different person. And so do we. When you've gone through those first three chapters of life, um, when you show up at the next chapter, when you show up at chapter three, um, things are different. And you know now the essential truth of your existence and why you're here and what you need to do with this part of your life. He goes to that city. The God says, gives him a second chance. Here's your message to Nineveh, Jonah, and I want you to do it. So he goes. Um, Nineveh is the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. It's not that close to the, to the, um, to the, the Mediterranean Sea, but Maybe if you take a river or something, I don't know. But he gets there. It's a really big city, according to this. Three days walk across. If a human can walk, um, I don't know how far you can walk in a day. Um, How far a human can walk in a day is debatable. When um, When the settlers in Pennsylvania made a treaty with the natives about what kind of land they would be buying. The natives agreed to the land that a man could walk in a day. Um, I forget the name of this treaty. It became a scam that the government, the English government officials pulled on the natives by saying um, they had special paths made for these young men who could run really fast. And in a day and a half or a day, they covered much further, many more miles than the natives thought anyone could um, because they just thought, you know, what a day's walk would be. This has happened in a number of places um, throughout history where people said, yeah, you can have as much land as you can walk in a day. The old Texas joke is um, the Texan rancher says, my ranch is so big, I can get my pickup truck in the morning and drive all day and never reach the end of it. And the, the other guy says, yeah, I used to have a truck like that too. <laughs> so uh, it's relative to the speed you can go, but just say a human can walk 25 to 30 miles in a day. Um, you probably can. Uh, that's pretty far and almost ridiculously far um, for even a, a, a modern city. But um, that's how big Nineveh is. Three days walk across and Jonah goes out. A day's walk into the middle of it, right in the middle of everything, and preaches this message. Forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, overthrown. Hard to know what people take as his meaning. And the people of Nineveh Nineveh believe God. This is the weird part of the story. The wild part of this story is not that a whale swallowed somebody and spit him up three days later and the guy survived. Maybe that's wild for when you just read it. But the wild part of the story for me is that a whole city listened to this guy and believed him and believed God. But that's the power of our message. Um, We often think that 
the, the stories about Jesus that we tell and how Jesus has transformed our life will have no effect on anybody else. No one will ever listen or believe us. But here, Nineveh believes. They do. So they put on sackcloth. Notice that the animals do it too. Um, the king of Nineveh gets up from his throne. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. Um, this is the symbol of mourning, of penance, of penitential behavior. It is practiced by our church on Ash Wednesday, where we sign ourselves with ashes to show that outward sign of our inward repentance, um, our change of our behavior and ways and thoughts in trying to follow God, God's, um, God's guidance in our lives and hope in our lives and our mortality as well. That is also a sign of the ashes that they put on their heads and sit in and the sackcloth they wear. Um, And the king says that all the humans and all the animals have to do it. It seems like Nineveh has a really close relationship with its animals. Um, We think of the losses in our lives of animals and how sad that is. And we're going to mourn and grieve the loss of a deer cat today in our community um, that someone shared with me this morning. We'll, we'll pray for them in a bit. But the, the fact that the animals are part of the community of Nineveh um, witnesses to something really deep about them, that they don't just see um, them, the humans as the only important thing in that community and society. The animals are also covered in sackcloth and ashes. They repent as well. And maybe God will turn away. There's this, this t- talk of God changing God's mind here. We see this a number of places in the Old Testament. The word is in Hebrew, I think, is shuv, to turn or change one's mind. It's, it's translated a number of different ways. Um, to repent sometimes. And God repented that he had made humans at one point. Um, or God changed his mind. God changes his mind about Saul. Even though in the same chapter, Samuel, the prophet, says, God is not a man, that he changes his mind. And then it says a little bit later, and God changed his mind about Saul. So a little irony there in, the, in 1 Samuel. And a little bit of irony here. The people of Nineveh say, maybe, Nineveh say maybe God will change God's mind. Who knows? God may change his mind and turn from his fierce anger and will not perish. And God saw what they did. God noticed what they did. And God changed his mind, it says, about the calamity. Whenever we think of doom and gloom and prophecy and um, judgment on wicked behavior and all those things, we must remember the story of Jonah, that God is watching. And when people repent and change, we ought to believe them and we ought to accept that. Um, We ought to to be like God in this way, that God listens to their repentance. God believes them. And God doesn't do the judgment that God said God would do. And this was very displeasing to Jonah. I love this. This is where it gets comical. The story takes a real turn here. It doesn't end with this like great moment of triumph. Wow, God relented. God changed his mind about the judgment. It's all good now. The people of Nineveh are listening to God and they're following God's ways. They're doing it. 
That should be the happy ending of Jonah, but it's not. The ending of Jonah is sad, comical, but also really insightful about how we really are. Jonah starts to pray. He hasn't prayed much since the belly of the whale. He prayed in the belly of the whale, and now he prays again. Um, he said, you know, what's going on? How in the world um, could you do this? How could you betray me like this? I wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. Now, granted, anybody in that time that wasn't Assyrian or Ninevites would, um, would probably want them destroyed too. They really were like Darth Vader and the Emperor Palpatine and the First Order and the, you know, Empire. They, they did that. They were like that. Um, the Assyrian Empire was terrible to deal with for the most part, from what I can read. They, there is a famous um, inscription or uh, whatever you call it, carved into stone on the gates of the city of Nineveh from the ancient world of people being skinned alive, the enemies of Nineveh being skinned alive. So their terror, reign of terror, was well known. And they like to publicize that. Um, if you oppose us, we will do this kind of stuff to you. So, and they had done that kind of stuff. They did that to the nation of Israel. They um, came in, conquered, and destroyed pretty much everything about their way of life. And they had done this before, and they had attempted to do it before as well. A lot of the Old Testament history is dedicated to the threat of the Assyrian Empire. And here we have this empire repenting the king of it repenting so you can we can sympathize with jonah's disappointment in the lack of destruction of the city but ultimately um, we wonder about him and his state of his soul if he is not if he is not happy when god is happy when he's not happy about lives being spared God asks him this question a couple times. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? It's a good question to ask ourselves in our righteous anger. Is it right for you to be angry? doesn't mean that anger is bad. We get angry and we should be angry. Um, and yet, um, you know, we should ask ourselves, is this right for me to be angry about this? We must ask ourselves that about all of our emotions. Not that we shouldn't have them. Not that we shouldn't experience them. And then there's this thing with a gourd or the bush that grows up and gives them some shade and God kills the bush or the worm kills the bush. Um, I love how verse 6 of chapter 4 says, And the Lord God appointed a bush. <laughs> he ordained a bush. Um, and the way it's phrased there, the Lord God, it's the creation story. It's the language of, of Genesis 1. The Lord God, the highest entity in all of the universe, appointed a bush. God's work is serious, even when it comes to the bushes God appoints. I hope you can um, make, realize this about the plants in your life. Go outside today or inside and look at the plants and see them as living beings that God has appointed, put into your life to teach you something, to show you something, to give you something. To, um, to be there for you in a way that you need it. Um, we often think of animals that way, dogs and cats particularly, as being there for us, put there in our lives 
to bless us and to show us love. And But plants are there for that reason too. God appointed a bush. God appointed a bush. Jonah was very happy about the bush, it says. You can see Jonah's emotions here. He goes all the way down the depths of despair. It is better for me to die than to live. It is better for me to die than live. There is an altruistic suicidality in Jonah. And this is the terrible nature of suicidal thoughts and ideations, that we often feel that it'll be good for other people if we were gone, if we were to die, that other people would have a better life without us. We are a burden to them. And there is this altruistic impulse in suicidality often that Jonah has in this story. It is a lie. It's a lie from the devil. It's a lie from our own um, illnesses. It's a lie from, um, that destroys life and causes... But that is the temptation. That is the invitation of that. And we must, be, we must tell people about that. We need to tell our doctors, our counselors. Hope you tell me if you're feeling that way. Um, that Jonah feels this way twice in the story is not lost on us. That he wants to die. It's better for me to die than to live. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? Um, yes, Jonah says, angry enough to die. Have you ever been angry enough to die? I have. Where I thought, I'll show them. I'll show them. They can't do this to me anymore. I'll show them. I'm angry enough to die. And this is the conversation God has with Jonah. Um, God takes him seriously. God doesn't dismiss his feelings about his own death. God listens to him. And he explains to him that, you know, this bush was a gift of grace. And all the gifts of our life are the gifts of God. Even the bushes in our life are gifts from God. Even the plants. Um, all of this is a gift from God. And Jonah was more concerned about this plant than he was about Nineveh. Um, his priorities were skewed for his own necessities and needs. Don't you worry about the kids who don't know the right hand from their left, the children under five or six? What about the animals, Jonah? These are the questions that the book ends with. The book ends with these questions saying, we ought to be asking these questions when we feel like Jonah feels. Um, there's a lot in this story that's kind of comic. Even the sultry east wind. I, I just sort of, if you can picture the sultry east wind coming in and killing the, the plant. Um, some really wild language, linguistic descriptions here. But ultimately this essential truth that God wants to talk to us. God wants to know us. And the relationship between Jonah and the bush is almost more important than the relationship between Jonah and Nineveh. Um, this is the relationship that God is exploring with Jonah. There is nothing too small for God. And that's true for your life too. The conflicts of your life, the places that are fric fric frictional, <laughs> the places where there's anxiety and despair, and torment, and grief. Those are the places that God wants to talk to you about. Those are the places where God is going to have a dialogue with us about, and going to explore with us through Holy Scripture, through the community, through our relationship with Jesus. That is what God is leading us into, because that is what God is leading Jonah into. 
as well. Amen.